Welcome to the Birthful Podcast. I'm Adriana Lozada, and today we're talking about ACOG's new recommendations on limiting interventions during labor and birth. Do you need to be continuously monitored? Does your bag of waters need to be broken? Do you have to hold your breath to push? How about IV fluids? It turns out that many common obstetric practices are of limited and uncertain benefit, and it's time to change things up. Sharon Muja tells us more. Stay tuned. This episode of Birthful is brought to you by Natural Breastfeeding and their free quick start video, which shows you a simple technique to prevent nipple pain and the easiest way to help your newborn latch and for you to produce enough milk for your baby. Go watch it at naturalbreastfeeding.com. This episode of Birthful is also brought to you by Megan Othling, a birth doula in Albuquerque who is all about offering women the information and support they need to make their own empowered birth choices. Learn more at womanofvalorbirth.com. The Birthful Podcast, talking to maternity pros to inform your intuition. Hello, mighty mamas and mamas-to-be and mighty dads and dads-to-be. As always, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for listening and for all the love you give the show. I really appreciate all your comments, requests, and of course your reviews since those help get the show in front of even more parents. So if you enjoy what you hear, please consider subscribing and leaving a review in iTunes even if that's not how you usually listen to this show because it really helps. So thank you. Before we start the show, here's a shout out to Megan Othling for helping to bring this episode into the world. Megan is a birth doula in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And if you want to check out more of what Megan does, then go to womanofvalorbirth.com. And if you want to help bring an episode of Birthful to all the mighty listeners out there, then go to birthful.com slash Patreon to find out more. While you're there, grab a copy of my postpartum preparation worksheet. It's awesome and it's free. All right. My guest today is the fabulous Sharon Muja, who has been an active childbirth professional since 2004, teaching Lamaze classes and providing doula services to hundreds of couples through their through her private practice in Seattle, Washington. She is an instructor at the Simkin Center Baxter University, where she's a birth doula trainer. Sharon is also a trainer with Passion for Birth, which is a Lamaze-accredited childbirth education program. She has been the community manager, writer, and editor for Science and Sensibility, which is Lamaze International's blog for birth professionals, since 2012. And more recently, she is the blog manager for Dona International and their blog, Dona Doula Chronicles. Sharon was awarded Lamaze's International's Media Award in 2015 for promoting normal birth. She enjoys active online engagement and facilitating discussion around best practice, current research, and its practical application. And that is why she is the perfect person to talk with me about ACOG's new recommendations today, because, well, basically, she gets as excited as I do about this stuff. Sharon, welcome. I'm so happy to have you here on the show today to talk about these fabulous recommendations. Thank you. I'm excited to be here because I also think they're fabulous and um uh, could be a real game changer. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And uh, before I move on, congratulations on your new post as blog manager for Dona International and their blog, Dona Doula Chronicles. That's something that I get in my inbox all the time. So I was very excited to to see you do you do Science and Sensibility, which is the Lamaze blog, and then now the Dona. So I get to get double double dose of Sharon in my inbox. <laughs> uh, awesome. Yeah, I'm really um, I'm really happy that I was selected, and I look forward to. Um, putting lots of good stuff out in 
in that area. Yeah, I'm sure you'll do fabulous. So about these recommendations, so let's, I wanted to clarify first for the listeners what ACOG is. So ACOG is the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, which is pretty much the, they define themselves as the premier professional membership organization for OBs. Um, And as such, so they put out committee opinions on obstetric practice constantly. They're constantly putting stuff out. But last month, they came out with a committee opinion entitled Approaches to Limit Intervention During Labor and Birth that was also endorsed by the American College of Nurse Midwives and the Association of Women's Health, Obstetric, and Neonatal Nurses. What? So, listeners, before you think that this is going to be boring and academic, and no, let me tell you that the content of this specific committee opinion is very relevant. If you are pregnant, because like as Sharon was saying, it is kind of a game changer. Um, they, what I find different about this one is that it focuses on ways of limiting intervention during labor and birth. And as you probably know, interventions can get in the way of labor, for, of labor flow. So that's huge. But I also found that the tone of the abstract itself was very woman-centered, which is a refreshing approach. It seemed different. Did it seem different to you as well, Sharon, uh, the different tone? And what, what, when you saw this, what were your first initial thoughts? Um, well, when I first saw this, um, I was very excited. And I feel like uh, this committee opinion follows on the heels of a committee opinion released in February 2014 called the Safe Prevention of the Primary Cesarean, which really was recommendations to reduce the risk of people having their first cesarean. And that also was really big and, and, and was steered a little bit toward that um, lower intervention uh, lens, looking at things through a lower intervention intervention lens. And then um, this new committee opinion sort of even takes it a step further. Um, I, I'm, I'm not sure I 100% agree with you that it's completely woman-centered or parent-centered. Um, I still think it feels a little bit like provider-led, um, but I do agree with you that um, this committee opinion and recent other ones have been more respectful of pregnant people's choices. Mm-hmm. And um, they, they recently came out with one about informed consent also and or shared decision making. And so I, I think we're, we are starting to see um, a small shift toward looking at um, maternity care as as a cooperative process versus uh, healthcare provider led. Yeah, and I think that's what that I, I guess I was so excited about the little shift. It's not completely mother centered, but it, but it it even acknowledged that you know mom has some <laughs> some <laughs> some say in in you know the yeah. care that is done, provided to her. Um, like the the first line of the abstract said, obstetrician gynecologists in collaboration with midwives, nurses, patients, and those who support them in labor. So the whole birth team can help women meet their goals for labor and birth, even thinking that women have specific goals of labor and birth, right? That they can help them right. meet. Like that's different language. Um, goal, goals for labor and birth by using techniques that are associated with minimal interventions and high rates of patient satisfaction. Patient satisfaction. Like, seriously? That's a new, yeah, that's a new buzzword. 
Um, that's a new buzzword, and I think we're going to see more and more of that as healthcare consumers take their healthcare. Everybody's fighting over a limited pool of of dollars, and um, people are going to start to go where they can have the experience they want, you know, and take their money with them. So I'm hearing more and more about patient satisfaction, and I think that's going to guide a lot of um, a lot of uh, protocol, not protocols, but a lot of what we see offered. Mm-hmm. Which is, you know, and that has a second layer to it because it's not like, it's not just about, oh, you had a good birth, you know, were you satisfied with your birth, which is hugely important. But we know that having a birth experience that is not satisfying, that is traumatic, can then create serious mental health problems down the line, postpartum mood disorders, affect how you parent. It's not just, you know, there are consequences to not having a good birth. Absolutely. It's always in everybody's best interest, you know, families and society to have new families start off strong and positive um, with all of the skills that they need and all of the mental capacity, you know, and not coming from a, you know, a place of behind, behind, you know, that we launch them as strong as possible. Exactly. Really, really important. Yeah. So I'm a, I, that was great to see that it's talked about uh, patient satisfaction. And then the next sentence went on to acknowledge. It says many common obstetric practices are of limited or uncertain benefits for low risk women in spontaneous labor. It was actually recognizing that, huh, not everything we do in labor is necessarily right. evidence based and productive for this. So how about we <laughs> reconsider Um yeah, that was... Absolutely. Um, Archie Cochran, um, who uh, founded the Cochran Library or the Cochran Collaboration, uh, a repository of uh, information of research, um, several many years ago gave um, obstetrics the wooden spoon for the least evidence-based branch of medicine. <clears throat> wow, I didn't know and, that. Uh, yeah, so... Um, you know, I mean, we have to remember that for normal, healthy, low-risk pregnant people, labor and birth is not, you know, it's a normal function of our body, and it's not typically something that needs interventions, until it does, you know? I mean, for some people it does, but we can't approach everybody saying everybody needs, you know, this whole layer of interventions, because we end up, as we see, Doing more harm than good. Yeah, yeah. So, and 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 we know also that that interventions, of, you know, in, impede the labor flow or get in the way of labor flow and that oxytocin flow. So it's it as yeah, it doesn't just not help. Sometimes it hinders. Right. There's a great word um, that I love. One of my favorite words, and it's called iatrogenic. No, mm-hmm. am I pronouncing it right? I. It's your favorite word. (laughs) Yeah, it should be my favorite word. I should know. And it means caused by, like, caused by medical care. You know, that a lot of, and exactly like what you said, a lot of what we do actually, not only does it not help, but it impedes. And then, and then can cause, you know, harm. It Mm. does Mm. often. 
I don't think I've ever heard that word pronounced, so I wasn't able to help you out there. Sorry. <laughs> I wasn't meaning yeah. to throw you under the bus. I was like, after. I always yeah. see it written. Yeah, yeah. Um, so how about we just go through these recommendations one by one and kind of translate them and say what's different about them. Fortunately, this committee opinion is not written. It has some medical jargon, but it's not super inaccessible. So I will link it on the show notes and I recommend all the listeners to go and read the whole thing because we're just going to go through the bullet points. But but there's some translation I think that can be be helpful. So or shall we do that? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. That's pretty easy to read. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So the first one is for a woman who is at term in spontaneous labor with a fetus and vertex presentation, labor management may be individualized depending on maternal and fetal condition and risks to include techniques such as intermittent auscultation and non-pharmacologic methods of pain relief. So what does that mean? Okay, first of all, for... um... Uh, for a woman at term in spontaneous labor with a fetus in vertex position means a baby that's head down. Um, and what they're saying is that if um, a normal, healthy, low-risk person with a head down baby who is full term, 37 to 42 weeks, um, has some choices about how their labor uh, will be handled. And some of those choices um, could include uh, what they call intermittent auscultation, which is uh, listening to the baby's heart tones with a, a handheld Doppler that is often similar to the kind that uh, people are exposed to when they have their prenatal appointments, you know, the little wand that goes on the belly with a handheld um, listening device, um, that that's appropriate, and also um, non-medication type uh, coping mechanisms can also be helpful and reducing pain. So they acknowledge that um, laboring people have a choice. Mm -hmm. Um, And I like it comes up again and again, so we will hear about it. But this whole intermittent auscultation, like non-continuous monitoring of baby's heartbeat, how that can be... um, helpful and and I, I i won't talk about it right now because i know we're going to get into it further along but i just want listeners to go like huh this is the first mention of that let's because that's really important we we'll get to it okay let's go yeah. to the second one it is admission to labor and delivery may be delayed for women in the latent phase of labor when their status and their fetuses status are reassuring the woman can be offered frequent contact and support as well as non-pharmacologic pain management measures right this is a big one and i think um one that people really need to get their head around so what this really means is that Um, For normal, healthy, low-risk pregnant people, we don't want to see you at labor and delivery until you're in active labor. And active labor has been redefined as around six centimeters. So um, they are suggesting that in order to reduce interventions, that people not be admitted, not, you know, be given a room until they have moved beyond um, early or latent labor. And that's further along than we previously used to call it. So I feel like families need to be prepared to do more laboring at home. Um, They may make trips to their birth location um, and get turned away because they're not quite far enough along. So they need to really have some solid skills 
coping skills, comfort measures to get them to get them to that six centimeters. And, and, and early labor can also, I mean, it can be, uh, you know, it's not all easy in watching movies. I mean, there's, you know, it can, it can get uh, intense as well. Um, and so I think people are going to need um, to be prepared for that. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't think we are right now. No, and I don't think, you know, culturally, the images we have of birth are not in accordance to what actually happens. So we, you know, all the, because it's not, it doesn't play well in TV. So you yes. get all these images of like, oh, suddenly you're in labor. And these moms go from nothing to being in active labor and having contractions every two to three minutes and their water breaks and you got to rush to the hospital, which is not, not all what right. tends to happen, right? right? You know, it right. tends to right. be hours of huh, you or know days or day, days yes yes yeah um so yeah it is really and, important and, for, yeah. for moms to find ways to because they will go in and they will be turned away or told you know walk around for another hour and let's check you again and then you get this feeling of you're only so and so three centimeters which that when they say you're only this and that it really breaks my heart because you're not only that you're like already that Right. Ugh. And you could be working hard. I mean, and I think um, maybe head into the next point because it it goes together when you said, you know, uh, um, you know, it can be hours or days. Uh, it, it can it. It can be days. Um, and. I don't think people are prepared for that. Yeah, and it's perfectly normal, perfectly normal for the latent or early phase of labor to take a couple days. Mm-hmm. And which and it's important to note that usually, like in some cases, it can be it ramps up to intensity, but it can be a lot of not very intense. Some of that movie watching, some of that you know discomfort, right, right. but not bathing and yeah, 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 yeah for days. So, totally. um, I think what's really important here also is to this whole thing about five to six centimeters changing of before it was more like four, three, four centimeters. And recently it's been changed to five and six centimeters, the definition of the active labor. So how does that affect, like for listeners out there going, well, my, my practice told me five, one, one or four, one, like, can we just do a little intermission here (laughs) or a little segue to just give some tips on when it's a good time to go to the hospital or what you're looking for? What does that, going into active labor can look like? Yeah. Well, um, you know what I'm seeing here in Washington State, um, I'm in Seattle, and the Washington State Hospital Association, um, they have revised their recommendations and now encourage uh, first-time birthing people um, who are healthy and low risk um, to consider um, heading to the hospital at what they're calling 311 which is contractions three minutes apart, lasting for a minute, and you've been in that pattern for an hour. So that's definitely different than the 411 or 511, you know, sort of uh, historically, that's kind of what we've said. But the benefit of using this new guideline is that you're more likely to arrive at the hospital and be admitted uh, versus, um, you know, being asked to walk around or come back later. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, one of the things that I, I, I see, I, I don't see the 311 much, but I like to tell my clients, and this is something I've learned from um, 
you know, childbirth education training of also and 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 just doula talk basically <laughs> of of having that you know your three one one or your four one one, but also a mood change, having that yeah, that mom yeah. being more centered in labor, like what was it there was one midwife and i can't remember who who said um if there's a hundred dollar bill on the floor on your way out to the hospital do you bend down and pick it up and if you do it's <laughs> not time to go to the hospital yet <laughs> excellent excellent yeah i love it love it uh, or i often say like if you're scratching your head wondering if it's time to go to the hospital it's probably not yeah 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 for first time moms Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So let's let's talk about that. Said next recommendation is when women are observed or admitted for pain or fatigue in latent labor, techniques such as education and support, oral hydration, positions of comfort, and non-pharmacological pain management techniques such as mas- massage or water immersion may be beneficial. Right. So, um, you know, if someone has been up for a couple of days. Um, laboring, um, even if their uh, progress has not put them quite yet into what they define as active labor, they can still need some support. And uh, ACOG, through their recommendation here, is recommending something other than an epidural, saying that if it is still early or late in uh, phase of labor, um, let's try some, let's try and make you comfortable. Let's try and reduce your pain through... um, you know, getting in the tub or uh, some really comfortable positions with lots of pillows or massage um, and, and offering support, but, um, but encouraging people to continue to labor without pain meds during this early phase. Mm-hmm. And it, it, we kind of get into that a little further along too, but there is a reason why this is important is because all of these, like movement is huge during labor so yeah having the option to continue to move is you know gives gives is it still something that helps more labor to progress along and 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 yeah to move along and things to change as you go yep and avoiding interventions early you know only helps can only help to promote labor progress Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely so the next one is a little more medically <laughs> jargon, but it says, medically. "Yeah, <laughs> obstetrician, gynecologist, and other obstetric care providers should inform pregnant women with term premature rupture of membranes, also known as pre-labor, pre-labor rupture of membranes, who are considering a period of expectant care of the potential risks associated with expectant management and their limitations of available data. For informed women, if concordant with their individual preferences and if there are no other maternal or fetal reasons to expedite delivery, the choice of expectant management for a period of time may be appropriately offered and supported. Um, For women who are group B streptococci GBS positive, however, administration of antibiotics for GBS prophylaxis should not be delayed while awaiting labor. In such cases, many patients and obstetrician gynecologists or other obstetric care providers may prefer immediate induction. So let's break this up. Wow, into, that's a I know, I know. Yeah. Let's break it up into two parts. The first part that was, you know, for women who are not or, or people who are not group B positive. And then we can, because I think that's, there's a lot to unpack in that, in that section. Um, so what does that mean? 
Okay, so first of all, um, we're talking about um, people who are, are full term, again, that 37 to 42 week uh, range. Um, about 10% of, well, you know, the books say 10%. Anecdotally, I think it's a little bit more, but we'll, we'll go with what the books say. 10% of people's uh, water will break, their membranes will rupture uh, before labor has started. And um, at that point, there are two options. There's expected management, which is um, waiting for labor to start, or there's active management, which is uh, inducing or getting labor going artificially. 95% um, of people whose water breaks as the first sign of labor will be in, in labor within 24 to 48 hours. And so um, current research indicates that expectant or waiting management to go into labor is has as good outcomes as active management. So waiting, um, the same number of babies go to the NICU, the same number of cesareans results. Waiting is an equally good choice for people who want to as doing things to get things going. And most people will go into spontaneous labor within 24 to 48 hours, most people being that 95%. So um, ACOG is saying that um, women should be counseled and told this, and um, and then they can make a choice about what they would like to do. I would like to interject. They they didn't talk about this here, but I think that um, people should know that if if your water has broken, if your membranes have released, have ruptured, it's really important to avoid vaginal exams because. Um, that barrier between um, the outside and the inside is now broken. And um, with every cervical check, you can increase your risk of infection. And, and you, you know, no one wants anybody to have an infection, not the baby, not the pregnant person. So that's really key um, to be aware of. And I often um, talk to my clients about, you know, before you consider a, a cervical check here, would you do anything different with the information? Because if you're going to continue to wait or you're not going to, you don't need that information to make a decision, then maybe consider delaying it um, or declining a cervical check uh, until um, a more critical time. Um, so ACOG is suggesting that women be counseled on this and, and, uh, letting them make the choice of if they prefer to wait or not. But they're recognizing that group B streptococcus or GBS, which is a bacteria that we normally have in our digestive tract, but sometimes finds itself into our reproductive tract, um, is present. Uh, having your water broken increases the risk of GBS, the bacteria, um, going to the baby. And um, a baby with a GBS infection uh, is a pretty serious thing. And so nobody wants that. Uh, so they are recommending, and quite wisely, that um, the parent be treated with antibiotics, if, particularly if their water has been broken, to reduce the chance of transmission of that bacteria. And even if the parent is waiting for labor to start, 
they should have already started a course of antibiotics. Um, and then um, overall, uh, they, they acknowledge that for people who have GBS, um, they may not want to wait at all. And that could be a reasonable choice. Mm-hmm. And I find that that part gets a little tricky because, you know, if you're trying to wait but go in and get antibiotics, you most likely won't leave. And come back for more antibiotics when, you know, when you have to get them again. And it's kind of going back and going in. So it does create a trickier situation because then you're kind of going in when it's a little early. Um, but circumstances played out that way. Right. And I'm, I'm trying to think here if they would, because the antibiotics, they're every eight hours. So um, I'm thinking for in, uh, in my neck of the woods for the um, they do it every four hours with the penicillin. And if you're allergic to penicillin, mm. then you get other ones that can be every eight hours, uh, eight, eight hours. Yeah. 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 So certainly. I don't know if you can request admitted. doing the other yeah, one. No. no, no, you can't. I mean, because the. Penis, the, I don't remember. I don't actually remember if it is penicillin, but the first, the every four hour one is is more appropriate and only for people with allergies. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe you wouldn't. <clears throat> excuse me. Maybe you wouldn't be admitted to the labor and delivery unit. Maybe you would be admitted to antepartum, where there's a lot less. Um, you know, uh, uh, it's more relaxed, right? You know, you're yeah. you're not like waiting, waiting, waiting. You're just sort of like parked there. And that's probably a little bit more comfortable. Could be an option. Yeah, and I think that's that's worth you know a conversation and looking into what what is available wherever you live. <laughs> because I think we we don't have a separate where when you get admitted you're either in triage waiting or then you go into a labor room, and the triage tends to be more chaotic than being in your labor right. room. Um, right. Yeah. But another thing that I found was interesting here and also tricky is that they say, you know, um, if your water is released, your water is broken. And do you th- there's the choice of expectant management for a period of time that may be appropriately offered and supported. But they stay away from what that period of time is. They don't, you know, 12 hours, 24 hours come immediately. Like they don't, they don't talk about that period of time, um, which then I, you have said, you know, what the data suggests is that 95% of women whose water breaks will go into labor on their own within 24 to 48 hours. I don't see many practices wanting to wait that long. What, what do you say? Right. Right. Well, further down, um, uh, in like sort of their expanded section, they they I think um, they do speak a little bit about um, about time, um, and they reference some studies that looked at um, you know waiting anywhere from ten hours up to four days, and I do think you're right. You're right that. You know, around here, it's like, well, we'd really like to see you in active labor by, you know, 12 hours, 18 hours, really like to have you delivered by 24 hours. I think this is going to be one that isn't going to change quite as quick as some of the other uh, factors that they talk about. I think 
Um, they're still going to want to admit people whose water is broken and they're still going to want to get them going sooner rather than later. And mm -hmm. I think this one's going to be um, a hard one to turn around. Yeah. And which is tough because even just having the conversation of, well, we would like to see you in active labor in 12 hours, that already is planting that stress mm -hmm. in the mom's head mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. she's mm -hmm. it, that is an in, that sentence is an intervention in itself um right. yeah not gonna help her go into labor yeah yeah and then moms are like well i need to do this i need to do that i need to do the other when uh, that it's tough it's, it's a, a tough, tough situation yeah before we move to the other one we're gonna take a quick break and we are because we're like we're about halfway there a little bit more than halfway there but i think this one was one of the trickiest ones we will be right back research tells us that 92 percent of new moms report significant problems with breastfeeding within the first week and that common problems include nipple pain milk production and latching let me tell you, nipple pain sucks. It is no fun at all. And the thing is that it only takes a couple of badly latched breastfeeding sessions for your nipples to become unnecessarily damaged. Do yourself a favor and go watch Dr. Teresa Nesbitt and Nancy Moorbacher's free quick start video that gives you everything everything you need to know to get started with natural breastfeeding. I have seen these techniques work time and time again since this is what I teach my doula clients and it's also super comfortable to do. I'm telling you, your back will not hurt from breastfeeding if you use these techniques. So go do it. Go watch the quick start video to natural breastfeeding at naturalbreastfeeding.com. All right, so we are back and talking about ACOG's recently new recommendations on limited, limiting interventions with Sharon Muja. And so the next one we're going to talk about is, I think, one of my favorites. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it says, mm -hmm. yeah, evidence suggests that in addition to regular nursing care, continuous one-to-one -one emotional support is associated with improved outcomes for women in labor. What are they saying there, Sharon? They're saying get a doula. They are. A doula, <laughs> a doula is a, a trained person who provides emotional, physical, and informational support to laboring people and their families. And um, this is the second time um, that ACOG has come out in support of professional labor support. Um, they don't actually call it, well, I, I think we would want to look um, further down. Um, do they actually use the word doula? They, such as a doula, they do say, yes. So um, this is the second time that ACOG has come out uh, in favor of doulas. And the first one was that uh, 2014 committee opinion that I mentioned before, Safe Prevention of the Primary Cesarean Delivery. And um, they are acknowledging what the research shows, that trained professional labor support improves outcomes and reduces interventions. And um, I mean, look, the whole title of this committee opinion is is limiting interventions and and they're acknowledging that doulas help do that. Um, so uh, with that in mind, um, they're making that recommendation. But what we know is only 6% of families right now um, birth with a doula. So one, we need more doulas. Two, we need to make them accessible to all financial ranges of people. Um, and 
in fact, I believe in this article for when we look at this, they they talk about um, potentially, um, you know, that people should consider hospitals should consider having doulas as part of their program. Um, so they, I mean, I, I, I love this one, just like you do. I, I mean, we know that people who have doulas are less likely to have a cesarean. Babies are going to have better APGAR scores, that assessment of their transition to the outside. Um, less likely to deliver with vacuum and forceps. Less likely to request pain medication. Higher satisfaction with their birth. Just really great outcomes all along. So, um, yeah. And I you think ATOG is really stepping up. Yes, yeah, yeah. No, and it and it goes hand in hand with the uh, recommendation before of, you know, stay away until you're in active labor, right? Because right. you're but right. you're gonna need right. support there. And they right. do mention, right. you know, the woman can be offered frequent content and contact and ah, contact and support. I can do this as well as non pharmacologic pain management measures, which is exactly what a doula does. So exactly what a doula and does, and they'll come yep. to your house, <laughs> and they'll come to your house, and they'll stay with you until you've birthed and. They do exactly what ACOG is recommending. Yeah. So we love that one. We love that one. Um, the next one says, for women, with, uh, for women with normally progressing labor and no evidence of fetal compromise, routine amniotomy, and amniotomy need not be undertaken unless required to facilitate monitor, monitoring. Right. And this is one that we've, honestly, all of these things that they're talking about there no, there no. I mean, this whole committee opinion is groundbreaking, but all the the sort of talking points that they're mentioning, we've known all along. It's just like it's like they're just waking up. Um, so what they're saying in this one is that there's no benefit to breaking the water artificially. Right. That it's go ahead. Yeah. No. Right. That's it. That the and and but oh, right. I think you it's said right. Yeah, right. I said right. Yep. Right. So um, if if somebody's labor is moving along, um, then let the water break naturally when it's going to break. 90% of people's water break in active labor. And there are some benefits to having that intact. It's a nice way to dilate the cervix. It prevents infection, reduces the risk of infection, um, allows the baby to have a little bit more fluid, to float the cord, to get into a better position. And someone's not on a clock. And uh, once the water is broken, it kind of, uh, mm -hmm. you know, we talked about it before. It puts people, we'd like to see you delivered within a certain point. Each vaginal exam is a risk of infection. So I love that they're saying, hey, if it hasn't, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And don't break it just for the, you know, just, just for breaking it because. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, but I think it's really important for people to hear this because, there's that thought that the water needs to break. And, and and like you said, most likely it will happen on its own whenever it happens. Um, and sometimes it doesn't. And the baby bees are born in the call and you just like break it once they're out and unwrap it, but, which is very rare. I still have not seen it in my, <laughs> in my 10 years. Um, but yeah, the other benefit is also when there's a little bit of cushion for baby's head. So... Right. All those forces are not being applied to baby's head and neck so quickly, 
you know, it happens when it happens, but then you tend to have less molding, less of a cone head um, if it's not broken artificially. Yeah, I don't, um, possibly, yes. I just think that there are lots of benefits to leaving it. It will break when it needs to break. And yep. like you said, if it doesn't break, then that's okay too. Um, and, and there are some risks to artificially rupturing the membranes. Um, one of those risks is prolapsed cord, where the cord comes down ahead of the head and then the baby's head compresses it. Another risk is um, a placental abruption, where the placenta... Uh, prematurely separates from the uterine wall, either as a result of um, lots of fluid, like volume decreasing quickly, or sometimes, um, yeah, no, that's it. I was thinking of something else. Um, so, and then of course the risk of infection. Mm -hmm. So uh, breaking the water is not without risk. And, um, you know, and here ACOG is recommending not doing it if it's not, you know, mm -hmm. if there isn't a reason to like, um, if they need to put an internal fetal scalp electrode on the baby um, or uh, intrauterine pressure catheter, um, that's what they mention here, if, unless it's needed to facilitate monitoring. Yep. So if it ain't broke, they'll fix it. Yeah. So the next one um, talks about to facilitate the option of intermittent auscultation, obstetrician, gynecologists, and other obstetric care providers and facilities should consider adopting protocols and training staff to use a handheld Doppler device for low-risk women who desire such monitoring during labor. Yeah, this is, um, really, all of these are so interesting. This is another big one. And um, several of our hospitals here in the Seattle area made the switch to intermittent auscultation for healthy, low-risk people. But what I'm finding as I go to support my clients at these facilities is while that is now recommended, we're often working with a labor and delivery nurse who hasn't been trained in this intermittent auscultation, this handheld Doppler fetal monitoring. And so while the situation would be appropriate for that particular person to receive that kind of monitoring, the staff is not able to provide it because they're not, they haven't been sufficiently trained. And ACOC recognizes that here um, because they say should facilities should consider adding protocols and training staff. And I think, um, you know, training staff is, is going to be the big obstacle in this one. People should know that um, for healthy, low-risk people, um, intermittent monitoring is as reliable and is as safe as continuous electronic fetal monitoring, and they should be asking for it. And if they are assigned a nurse who hasn't been trained in it, that they could request a nurse who has, because we know that continuous electronic fetal monitoring, when it's not appropriate, actually increases the risk of interventions in cesarean. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's the thing. Like, it, aside from being really annoying, <laughs> right? It, get that it, too. It gets in the way of your labor because then it becomes, you know, the nurse's primary job is to make sure that heartbeat is being heard. And every time you move, which movement is great for labor, then the band moves and they don't get it. And then somebody's coming in to go like, oh, let's check this. Oh, I can't hear. Oh, I can't hear. Um, and I, I wanted to add. I looked further down. I think this is the only one I'm doing this for that because they have ex all these recommendations and then further down in the text, they have um, expanded and uh, the 
expanded the the amount of I've said the paragraphs that they talk about that is specific to that recommendation and also you know cite the research and all of that but this yeah yeah in this one they do talk about you know they confirm they said continuous electrical electronic fetal heart rate monitoring was introduced to reduce the incidence of perinatal death and cerebral palsy and as an alternative to the practice of intermittent intermittent auscultation however the widespread use of continuous electronic fetal monitoring has not improved these outcomes when used for women with low risk pregnancies so it is one of those where it's it's about getting the system to change because the evidence clearly says that you know that's not helping you out you bet this is a big one and again i think the 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 um the wrench in the whole thing is going to be everybody I feel like many, many practitioners are in agreement that they understand that. It's just that staff need to be trained. Mm-hmm. Yep. The next one says, use of coping scale in conjunction with different non-pharmacologic and pharmacologic pain management techniques can help obstetrician, gynecologists, and other obstetric care providers tailor interventions to best meet the needs of each woman. Um, this is pretty straightforward. Right. And... Um... They just are recommending that um, along with uh, pain medication, if that's what someone is choosing, that um, there are other options that include non, um, non-pharmacologic or, or not you know, medication-based um, things and that everybody is different and um, trying different things is appropriate. Mm-hmm. Um, another one we love, frequent position changes during mm-hmm. labor to enhance maternal comfort and promote optimal fetal positioning can be supported as long as adopted pillow, uh, adopted positions allow appropriate maternal and fetal monitoring and treatments and are not contraindicated by maternal, medical, or obstetric complications. Right. And this is an interesting one because, um, and this is an interesting one because while they're acknowledging that frequent position changes promote labor and encourage the baby to be in a good position, um, they say as long as adopted positions allow maternal and fetal monitoring, which is fascinating because above they talk about intermittent auscultation or intermittent monitoring is actually appropriate for healthy low-risk people. But here, you know what I mean? Which yeah. It's not hard to use the, the Doppler. So I, I can't understand why a position would not allow for that, you know. Yeah. Um, a, a little bit confusing, but um, they acknowledge and it's, it's great that, um, you know, moving every 30 to 60 minutes into a different position helps the baby, um, promotes labor, can reduce pain, and... Um, is, is an all-around win-win. And, and you know, I, I have to put in a plug for Lamaze International here. Because I feel do. like, so, yeah, I feel like so much of these recommendations in this com- committee opinion speak to the Lamaze Six Healthy Birth Practices, which, you know, and, and, and this is number two, walk, move, and change positions, you know. Um, and, you know, they're just common sense. I'm really appreciative of ACOC for yeah. um, putting out this committee opinion. Well, and that's it. And yeah, and I will certainly link to the um, to the blog post that you did in Science and Sensibility linking how how this committee uh, opinion supports all of Lama's healthy birth practices, he- healthy practices um, 
Because, yeah, it's something that Lamas has been saying and, and encouraging for years, for decades. Um, I know. I, I know, know, right? And so, but to have that, but to have Ag- ACOG backing that up, it, it is, it is a game changer. It's important. It's great. Um, and I also agree with you that this one's kind of, well, you're saying this, but then you are talking about <laughs> fetal monitoring again. And that's why I said way at the beginning, like, this is the first time we're mentioning it. And now it's coming up again and it's coming up. So mm-hmm. I think this one in a sort of in between the lines way, kind of people should read it as, huh, I should really pay attention to if there is a way, if it's appropriate for me to have intermittent fetal monitoring or auscultation because these this continuous monitoring might very well get in the way of me moving right right you know it's like they they they're still clinging to some of the things that they find comfort in even though it's not necessarily evidence-based yeah yeah they just told you oh it's not necessary but (laughs) yeah yeah. <laughs> oh, we don't want to give it up yet. <laughs> yeah, you know, not yet. We're on, on the way, on the way. Um, the next one. When not coached to breathe in a specific way, women push with an open glottis. In consideration of the limited data regarding outcomes of spontaneous versus valsava pushing, each woman should be encouraged to use the technique that she prefers and is most effective for her. Right. So... Um... What this, what this is referring to is sometimes what we call purple pushing mm-hmm. or hold your breath, let us count to 10 while you bear down. Um, we actually know that um, through research that when people um, can spontaneously push, uh, they actually bear down for about six seconds, not 10, um, first of all, and that it is better for the baby who um, experiences a little oxygen deprivation during the push because um, blood flow through the placenta slows down a little bit during the push, um, which is normal. uh, But when people push with an open mouth, often making a moan or kind of a noise, um, that that is a more effective push than, you know, puffing your cheeks out and, popping your eyes out and, you know, holding your breath and, and bearing down. And they're acknowledging that here and saying that each person should push the way it feels good for them. And even if someone has chosen pain medication during their labor, uh, when the baby gets low enough, um, you know, epidurals are pretty good nowadays. And they will often develop the urge to push and they'll know when they're having contractions and they'll want want to push. And so um, I think this, again, is, you know, a great recommendation and in support of research. And, uh, and like you mentioned earlier, sort of, you know, in this case, definitely a parent led, you know, that each person should do what feels good to them. Mm-hmm. And it, uh, and it does talk back to um, the Lamas healthy birth practice, avoid giving birth right. on your back and follow your body's urges to push. I wish they would yep. address the, the birthing on your back part, <laughs> but maybe in, in yeah. another, in a future <laughs> committee opinion. Ugh. Um, but yeah, this is huge because there is like, I'm, 
I'm sure we could compare notes and have a specific script of what moms are told when it comes time to push, especially if they have an epidural of, you know, hold your breath, tuck, count to 10, tuck your chin, curl around your baby, baby, grab behind your legs, bring <laughs> right. him to your ear. Like, do right. all these things sound right. familiar? Right. right. And we are on opposite end of the country. Um, right. It's like, totally. a, it, yeah, it's like a set script that everybody needs to push this way, regardless of what. And and at that point, moms are like in their deepest state of labor and just kind of very vulnerable. Um, and yeah, I find it definitely gets in the way. So letting moms know that they don't have to do that. And, and, and you know, when they're in labor, people can push with make any noise they want and follow what their body is doing is going to support that what Michelle Adant calls the fetal ejection reflex, where your body's going right. to do it. Yeah. Yeah. So we like that one, too. Um, let's see. We're almost there. I think we're in the last one, but there was one that, strangely enough, they didn't add to the recommendation list, but it's tucked underneath, <laughs> tucked in the middle of the text. So um, we're going to bring that one up, too. Um, this one, which is the last recommendation of the list, is in the absence of an indication for Expedi expeditious expeditious delivery women particularly those who are nulli paris with epidural analgesia may be offered a period of rest of one to two hours unless the woman has an urge to bear down sooner at the onset of the second stage of labor what's that one say? right what this one says well first of all i guess i want to say that pushing has an early and active and a transition phase just like labor does so once a person um, person's cervix is completely dilated and they move into that second stage or pushing phase of labor, um, the early phase is, is often where they don't have a strong urge to push yet or maybe just at the peak of the contractions um, as the baby starts to move down through the pelvis. And then that active phase of labor is... Uh, excuse me, active phase of pushing is where that strong urge to push develops and, and it, uh, sort of the meat of the pushing. And then that transition um, phase of pushing is what you were talking about, like the fetal ejection reflex, that very intense kind of crowning and getting the baby out. Um, so, so ACOG here is acknowledging that early phase of the second stage or the pushing stage of labor saying that people can be offered a period of rest of one to two hours, particularly if it's a first time um, birthing person, because we know that their pushing phase is longer. And particularly if they have an epidural on board, because the body is still doing the work of moving the baby through the pelvis. And that way less work can be done by the pregnant person and more, you know, until the baby is, 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 lower. And so um, this is called laboring down, um, meaning let the body in the uterus do the work until the baby is moved closer to the exit. And um, it, it's better for baby. Well, actually, so I guess, yes, it's better for baby. It conserves the parent's energy until they do need to push. And most people will develop an urge to push as the baby moves down. Interestingly, though, I do, I do want to mention, and maybe um, you would want to link to it as well, uh, Hensi Goer just wrote a post for Science and Sensibility, I think last month, about um, to push or not to push. That's the question. Um, because there was a study that came out 
um, that said that outcomes are not improved by laboring down or waiting until the urge to push comes. And um, so it was interesting that ACOG came out with this because that their recommendation is in direct conflict with um, a recent new study that said don't labor down. So um, and and Hensi in this blog post sort of evaluates both sides and tells us what well, you know what 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 the data overall uh -huh. suggests. So um, I I think uh, I think this is a really good one. I think all of them are really good, and and just that parents need to you know need to be prepared to suggest. Oh, just because I'm 10 centimeters, do I have to push now? Can I wait until I develop the urge to push? Can I wait until the baby moves through the pelvis a little bit more? Yeah, and I think it does go back to you know giving the power back to mom to decide what she feels like doing or what you know the person feels like doing, right. and also considering that the pushing phase has three stages to it and just because you're 10 doesn't mean that you absolutely have to start exerting yourself when the, we know that the uterus is the one that's doing most of the pushing and getting that baby out and you help with abdominal muscles but that's you know they're on the outside and very stretched <laughs> and like the force of you and your abdominal mus muscles exerting with contractions it helps the uterus but really it's the uterus doing the thing you right. know that's hugging right. the baby and it's such a strong and big enormous muscle right strongest strongest muscle in the human body that's right that's right so the um the one recommendation that was like tucked in the body of the recommend of a committee opinion and didn't make it up to the bullet points at the top was on hydration and oral intake and labor. And it says, women in spontaneously progressing labor may not require routine continuous infusion of intravenous fluids. Um, that's the one part I want to address. And then also it says, however, particulate containing fluids and solid foods should be avoided. These restrictions have recently been questioned, citing the low incidence of aspiration with current obstetric anesthesia techniques. This information may inform ongoing review of recommendations regarding oral intake during labor. So the first part is about getting IV fluids routinely. Right. And they're saying um, not necessary, really, um, <clears throat> for people who have normal labors, they don't need to be receiving additional fluids via IV. And in fact, we know that that can be harmful because it creates um, edema or swelling um, of, of tissues, including, um, including breasts, which could make initial breastfeeding a little bit harder. So um, they're acknowledging that not everybody needs an IV just because. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it all it can also <clears throat> cause, you know, ma the, the laboring person swells up and the baby also swells up. So then it can affect yep. birth weight, yeah. um, falsely inflating yeah. it. Yeah. And then you're like, oh, baby lost too much weight. Da, da, da. So, yeah. Um, right. Now, I, I don't think that I think that what they will still recommend and that people will see when they go to the hospital is that they are going to want to put put um, a saline lock or a hep lock. Um, access into the into the arm, so that if there were uh, was a need to quickly um, administer fluid or medication, that they do have access. So I think we're probably just, just that the people won't be connected to an IV. Mm -hmm. 
like, you know, receiving fluid. Yeah. Yeah. And we're fortunate over here in Rochester that that tends to be the routine that you get a HEPLOC, but you don't have to have IV fluids as a matter of fact. So. Excellent. Yeah, yep. we're. I see that, but I want everybody to know that, that what ACOG is saying about this. And then the thing about eating solid food, I liked that they are kind of hinting at possible future opinions. Um, that you know, saying how huh, we're saying don't eat, but that may or may not be the best thing for you. So we're gonna keep looking at this and may change our minds. <laughs> right. So they are leaving the door open a little bit. They have, you know, it, it, it's like holding on to the baby blanket or the pacifier. You know, there's a few things they aren't <clears throat> really willing to give up yet. Um, and I, I think it's a matter of time because we know that for normal, healthy, low risk people, again, you know, there's no harm in eating food. And in fact, there's actual benefit. So, you know, we'll see it. The You know, slow change baby steps mm -hmm. and i think the research there i'm gonna look for the research that they're mentioning i think it came from the um i don't know what the equivalent organization is for anesthesiologists like what the acogs version Amer is yeah i think it's the american association of anesthesiologists aaa right so i i believe um it was last year earlier last year or the year end of the year before that they came out with a statement saying that it, you know, that they were sort of backing backing off of the no eating during labor. Well, yeah, I, I'd have to check too, because there was a lot of scuttlebutt about that. But really what it was, was a poster presentation by um, residents from a certain hospital. Um, it wasn't actually a, um, a published research paper. Mm. Uh, that initially everybody was like, look, you know, they say we can eat. <clears throat> but then um, they did come out with something more recently, but they hadn't yet jumped into the go ahead and eat pool. Mm -hmm. um, but I think we're headed, we're, we're on that road. It'll just take a little bit. Yeah, which is very encouraging. It's a fabulous. Sharon, this has been so much fun. I can't tell yeah, you how always. Oh, how happy I am that, that you came to the show to do this. If people want to know more about what you're doing or be in contact with you or just follow what you do, how can they do that? Um, they can reach me through my website, which is SharonMuja.com. I imagine you'll link to it. And, um, you know, I, I welcome questions and or requests for information. Uh, I think this... Uh, for all your families listening out there, um, particularly those of you who are hoping to avoid a, uh, a lot of interventions during your labor and birth, um, familiarizing yourself with this, familiarizing yourself with this committee opinion, discussing it with your healthcare provider in advance of your labor, and getting a doula um, who can again help reinforce these things, um, remind you of these things. Um, and help you to have those conversations with your healthcare provider uh, are all wonderful things. And this committee opinion is groundbreaking and can only benefit um, maternal infant outcomes. So I'm delighted to talk to you about it. Mm -hmm. it's pretty great. Yay. Sharon, thanks so much for sharing your knowledge. You're welcome. Mighty Ones, I love to hear from you. So share with me your thoughts. And if there's a certain topic you'd like to know more about, let me know. 
Go to birthful.com where you can learn more about me, the show, Patreon member benefits, and send me messages and more. I'm also on Facebook or Twitter as at birthful, so come say hi. And if you're pregnant, do not forget to go grab my birth partner's ultimate labor support toolkit at birthful.com slash toolkit. It will be so helpful to you. This episode was produced by me and made possible by you, the Birthful Patreon supporters, and by the wonderful people at naturalbreastfeeding.com. The title song for this podcast is Vive Ace by Kevin McLeod, and the sponsorship song is Air Hockey Saloon by Chris Zabriskie. Find them both at freemusicarchive.org. I'm Adriana Lozada. Please join me next week when I'll be talking to another maternity pro to inform your intuition here at the Birthful Podcast. Thanks so very much for listening. Hey, Adriana here. I wanted to let you know that starting this week, we'll be going back to our older format of one episode per week so that we can start easing into the summer and you can have more time catching up and going through our fabulous birthful library. Happy listening.